0: celebrate how death has been defeated, death was conquered and new life was made possible. And so as a result the celebration of Easter is really an amazing thing for us. It's it's filled with joy and many great family times and memories and things like that. It's a real it's a sweet holiday and we eat plenty of sweets on this holiday as well. But there's also You know, it's mixed emotions. Because like all our holidays, they're filled with wonderful elements. But at the same time, for many people, holidays bring up painful memories. You know, maybe it's about seeing other people with their families and feeling that you don't have that. Maybe it's mourning over someone who you love who isn't here for the holiday anymore. Perhaps it's seeing that, wow, this is all new, but you feel like, man, life has gotten really old for me. And as with all holidays, it's a time of extreme emotions, sometimes one way or the other. But the truth is, all of life is that way. All of life tends to be bitter and sweet. It tends to be there are great, awesome things that are happening, there's also a downside to it. And if you're ever going to deal with reality and find some kind of balance and an even keel in your life, you have to come to terms with the fact that both are true. Life is sweet. Life is also bitter. And to, to refuse to accept that is to live your life on a roller coaster, really. Living your life and being way up and then way down. This is really illustrated in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And so I'll invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 10. Might seem like a strange passage for an Easter message, but we just happen to be going through the book of Revelation. And as I was studying this passage, I just thought, boy, this is important for people to hear on Easter. And so if you've been with us through the studies, you know we're going through the book of Revelation and Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ and how he is going to fix what's wrong with our planet, how he is going to repair everything that's broken. God created the world and made it perfect, and people messed it up. And Revelation is the, is the prophecy concerning all of the events that are going to wind that up. Now, already through what we've studied through the first nine chapters of Revelation, we've seen a huge a uh, description of some really mixed emotion events some sweetness and some bitterness because the earth is going through a lot of torment during this time that's called the tribulation the word for tribulation means pressure and the and the pressure is on the world in this depiction in the future of how god's going to fix everything so it involves a lot of pain and suffering but also during this time, tons of people are discovering how you can live forever. Tons of people are coming to Jesus Christ, countless peoples from all countries, all languages. All over the world, people during this time will discover the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. And so all that's been happening, but now we've come to the point where it's just about over. All the pressure is about to be let out of the balloon, And finally the earth is going to be what it's supposed to be. The answer to all the problems is about to come. And so here in chapter 10, we see there's a little break as John has this experience that allows him to get a perspective on the last little bit of pressure that the planet's going to endure. And in the process, it tells us a lot about what to expect in the world and just the way that things are for us. And, and you'll see it really has an application to a holiday like Easter as well. So let's check this out, beginning with verse one. John said, I saw, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. Now right away you go, I wonder who this guy is. And people have speculated. I mean, he sounds like an interesting character. Later you see, he's standing on the sea and the land. Um, but it calls him an angel, and so most likely he's an angel. People have thought maybe he's Jesus because he, he has some of the characteristics that were described earlier about Jesus, but you'd expect a mighty angel to have resemblances to Jesus in some way. The, the fact that Jesus is never called an angel in the New Testament And something that the guy says later makes it sound like, I don't think he is Jesus. I think he's probably an angel. Some people have suggested Michael the archangel, but we don't know. There he is, shining with a, you know, he's got a cloud and a rainbow on his head and his face like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, big dude, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders, boom, boom, like thunder bursts, uttered their voices. They actually said something. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. He goes, I gotta get this down. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So John hears these thunder-like voices, and he wants to write what they said, and he's told, no, don't write it. So naturally, commentators spend a lot of time trying to explain what these thunders said. Well, I would like to tell you what they said, but John didn't write it down. And even if I knew what they said, I wouldn't tell you, so because God said, keep this to yourself. So... I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what they said, but they said something. (laughs) The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now, this is one reason I don't think it's Jesus, because Jesus wouldn't swear by the one who did all the stuff that he did. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, there have been six trumpets already, the seventh one that's coming. When he is about to sound the mystery of God, everything that you didn't know will be finished. As he declared to his servants, the prophet's. So basically, there's this declaration to John, it's almost over. The delay is just about past, and finally this thing is going to be done. It's going to happen, it's going to hit. All the problems of the world are going to be resolved at this point. And then in verse 8, he says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again, and said, Go, take the little book which is open, in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So he has this little book. Earlier there was a big scroll that had all of these events with seven seals, but, but all seven of them have been opened at this point. And then the last of the seals had seven trumpets that now there's only one left that's going to be sounded. And when the seventh trumpet is is tooted, Then there's just going to be seven really quick judgments. Boom, 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 seven bowls. And then it's all over and Jesus is going to return. So he says, I got a little book. It's like this thing is almost over. It's almost treating the big scroll as if it was a series. And so now there's just a little bit that's left. But this book is, again, it's telling what's going to happen. And so now it's a short book. Remember when you were in school and you had to do book reports? And there was nothing better than finding a really short book. If, if the teacher would okay it, you know, you'd get a book with two pages. Because <laughs> she'd go, I can get through this thing. And if one of the pages is a picture, so much the better. <laughs> well, that's kind of what it is now for John. It's like all that's left is this little tiny book that's saying what's left that hasn't happened yet that's going to happen. And so... The voice who spoke said, you know, um, said, go get the little book that's open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. So verse 9, I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, okay, but you have to eat it. (laughs) Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter or sour. And he said to me, you must prophesy again one more time about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. So John takes this little book and he eats it. And he's like, hmm, this is good. It's really sweet. Got into his stomach and it was really kind of sickening. And, and he's like, what's that about? And he is told, you have just a little bit more that you need to say. And you're going to have to share the final culmination of this revelation that, that God has. It's not going to take long. It's, it's, it's quick revelation, but it's going to have this aspect of being sweet and bitter, kind of like, you know, I, I, I try to stay away from sugar. So if I'm really craving something sweet, I eat sugar-free chocolate. It's really good. Because now they make it so it tastes really good, but it still has the added benefit that if you eat more than a few pieces, it reminds you that you don't want to eat too much of it. <laughs> and, and here John is having this experience. Wow, well, it's really sweet, but ooh, it's kind of gross in places too and that is again as i was sharing earlier that's life and that's certainly easter now why would what john is about to tell be sweet and bitter what's the what's the whole point of this now the rest of john's prophecies would be sweet for many reasons i mean he is telling how god fixes things He is predicting the coming of Jesus Christ. The Messiah is going to come and ascend and make everything right and set up his reign. Not only that, the pain that the world has always endured will finally be over. And on top of that, sin and death and tears and all of that stuff is wiped away forever nothing bad will ever take place again after all of this is wrapped up. The culmination of all of our prayers, of everything that anyone has ever desired, is going to take place. Everyone together and the only people that are that are free are the ones who choose to walk together before Jesus Christ with his grace and his mercy and his love. And so, an amazing event is about to take place, and it's, and it's the significance that fixes what has been wrong with this world from the beginning. So for John, he's foretelling something that is indeed really sweet. But why would it be bitter? Well, because in order for God to make things right, he has to remove that which is wrong, and that's going to do damage and that's going to involve pain in the same way that life offers great blessing and great joy, but also some pain and some suffering. All of that is because of the reality of sin, the reality of that things are broken and that they need to be made right. And so as a result, the rest of this time, the rest of this prophecy takes place At a time on the earth when, man, more bad things are going to happen. And you may go, man, things are bad and, you know, I want it to be good. But do you understand what needs to happen in order for things to be made good? In order for things to be back to perfection? And so as John's prophesying this, he is saying, yep, I have good news and bad news. So, yeah, it's sweet, but at the same time it's sour, it's it's bitter. Those things don't go together very well. But and so but he's saying what's left is short, but man, is it sweet? And man, is it bitter? And so that's what we see for the rest of the book of Revelation is going to be that. Now, how does that apply to Easter? What's the deal with Easter? And me saying, oh, yeah, it's the same thing. It's sweet and it's bitter. Well, when we look at this holiday that we call Easter, it's a great holiday. It really is. There's a sweetness about Easter that can't compare to any other thing that we celebrate because Easter says that death has been conquered. Easter says that there is a fresh start because Jesus conquered death and then said to us, because I live, you can live also. Man, Easter is something that we, we ought to be celebrating it all the time. Life starts over because of Easter. <coughs> there are a lot of people who, you know, think of Easter and they believe, oh, you know, it's a bunch of pagan stuff from, you know, it's all about bunnies and eggs and everything. But actually the truth is, Easter did not come from pagan holidays and from a pagan god. Um, that's a misconception completely. The, the word Easter, which came from the German and the Old English uh, words for the month that Easter happens to fall in, or the month of April, um, the word April in Latin refers to an opening, and the, the word for uh, there the old word for that, in which the word Easter came from, is also a word that means an opening, a new hatching, in a way. And that's why we use... Now, by the way, if, you, if you've heard, people have told you, oh, no, it's a pagan god and everything. We kind of got that idea because um, Grimm, who wrote Grimm's Fairy Tales, didn't like Christian origins for things. And so he tried to go back and he cited one ninth century monk named Beatty who says that this Oster was a goddess, a pagan Babylonian goddess that was where the Easter customs came from. But it, now we have enough information to know that that was bogus. Um, this guy Beatty, refers to several gods and goddesses to explain away Christian holidays. Uh, which there's no other evidence at all for that taking place. The truth is the celebration of Easter was originated by Christians um, as a Passover celebration and as a way to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Eggs were used because you take an egg and you open it and life comes forth, unless you've boiled it first, in which case (laughs) just a good egg comes forth. But... But all of these, the the whole idea of rabbits and fertility and things like that is all a reference to the fact that Easter means life. Easter means an explosion of life, an introduction, a new start, like all of civilization, all of history now starts forth with an opportunity for life instead of death. And so that's really sweet. And that's an amazing thing for us to celebrate, and we really should. And every time somebody has a baby, it's a reminder to us of resurrection. In fact, every time someone dies, it's a reminder to us of resurrection. And so that's a a wonderful thing for us to keep in mind and to keep at the forefront of our awareness of what's happening when we talk about Easter. However, there is a bitter side even to Easter. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people have mixed memories about Easter. But the very concept of resurrection, you have to understand a resurrection is impossible unless somebody dies. You don't need resurrection without death. And it's not just that Jesus had to die in order to rise from the dead, although that's true. But the image of Easter reminds us of death completely. Because whenever you're talking about resurrection, you're talking about something that, that is necessitated by death if there's ever going to be hope. And so death, and, and besides Jesus' death, a thousands of years of death that this world has endured, even the process of the fact that we are in the process of dying, and the older you get, the more you relate to this, when you're young, you just think you're going to live forever. But here's the, the process of death working itself out. And, you know, that has to take place in order for there to be resurrection. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die to get there. And so there's a negative connotation. But not only that, historically, the fact of the resurrection has been one of the most divisive and offensive beliefs that has ever been. In fact, there are over a million people who gave their lives as martyrs because of their conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because see, uh, if, if we don't believe in resurrection, then you can pretty much have any belief that you want, and we're all kind of in the same boat. The one thing that most religions will generally have in common is that pretty much what happens here is what matters most. But when someone comes along and says, by the way, you notice how everybody dies? Well, for us, we don't have to stay dead. We can conquer death. Death is something that people universally fear, something that across the board, no matter what people's beliefs are, They aren't anxious generally to die unless they've been completely conned into some reason why something is better happening. But the truth is when Jesus actually rose from the dead, which no other religious leader, no other religious teacher had ever done nor has ever done to this day, that rattled everyone's cages, that shook everyone up because it's like... Whoa, what is this? You guys are claiming that death doesn't apply to you? What, do you think you're better than everyone else? You think you're superior to us because you have conquered death? So so when what happened, as soon as the Christians started saying, Jesus is alive, we saw him. And they couldn't disprove it in those days because there were too many witnesses who had seen him. And they knew that he had been dead because they killed him. There's no way anyone could survive what he went through. The grave was empty, and so now they're threatened. And to this day, the fact of the resurrection, which is so easily proven by historical evidence, that offends people. And so the negative side of resurrection is that people who don't like that or don't believe in it are offended by those people who say they do believe in it. But there's another negative thing about Easter also, and, and that is not everyone believed. In fact, there were plenty of people after that first Easter who saw Jesus, and they knew, they heard the eyewitness accounts, and they chose to not follow him. They chose to reject him because Jesus always forces a decision, He always takes us to a point where we have to decide what to do with what he has done and with who he is. And so resurrection either causes us to say, I am going to put my faith completely in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and I'm going to bet my eternal future on the feasibility of that happening or I am going to reject it. It's hard to stay neutral about Easter either he rose from the dead or he didn't and and if you've chosen to believe that he didn't rise from the dead i respect that i don't i honestly don't completely understand it but i respect it because god respects it he doesn't force you to believe in easter but easter is a day when you know maybe you were dragged to church and it was like you know we can't get your chocolate eggs unless you sit in church with me. And so, but here you are and it's Easter and you're going, what does that mean to me? Why am I even celebrating Easter? What's this for? What's it about? The problem is when you hear what it's about, now you're held accountable and that may be a sour thing for you. That might make you bitter. You may want to resist it. People always have. There's nothing new in that. And so just like with John looking at what's going to happen in the future, for some, this is sweet. For others, it sounds ridiculous. It's offensive. It, it in every way is something that our, our minds just want to reject because we go, I don't really understand that. And maybe a bunch of people saw Jesus alive, but hey, I see magicians do things all the time. That I don't get. And so some people will reject him. Now this gets down to the very nature of what Christians call the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It's what we are all about. It's what our lives, our commitments, our, our devotion, everything that we do as believers in Jesus Christ centers around what's called the gospel. And in case you know, you're here and you haven't heard this laid out, Let me explain it to you really briefly. According to the Bible, there's something wrong with this world. Now, I doubt if there are many people here, whether you know Jesus Christ or not, who would disagree with that statement. Something's broken, something is messed up here. And we have to figure out what it is. According to the Bible, there were bad decisions that were made way back in the beginning. Adam and Eve had a choice, made the wrong choice, and ever since then, every person tends to choose what's wrong over what's right. And we have within us something that the Bible calls sin that is our tendency to do stupid things. It's our tendency to be self-destructive. And so we are naturally drawn to things that destroy us. Whether doing foolish activities, whether eating the wrong food, whether treating people who we have relationships with in a way that destroys that relationship, whether it's being selfish in a way that's going to completely defeat everything that we are, whether it's valuing things that rust and decay and and depreciate. um, It's this tendency that we have to make wrong decisions, and we're all good at that. You don't have to teach someone to do that. Every baby who was ever born is a brat coming out of the womb, pretty much. Sorry, you know, there are people who go, oh, children are so beautiful and so innocent and everything. Uh, You know, beautiful, maybe. Um, They tend to look like old people who are about ready to die. But, But honestly, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to break things. As soon as they can get a hold of something, they smash it on something. It's just the way they do it. Now, we get a little more refined in how we do things, and we usually don't leave the trail of evidence that (laughs) that babies leave when they go everywhere. You know, We're a little more polished in it. I remember when my son William was just a baby, uh, somebody got him these cute little Levi 501s. And back then, it was before all the pre-washed and everything, these jeans were so stiff. And William would go crawling down the hall, and he'd just slide right out of his jeans. And you would see his jeans sitting there in the hall. It's like, where's Will? And his jeans were there, you know, but somehow he got out of them. Well, as we get older, we slip out of things, but, you know, we hide them. We, We don't show that. But according to the Bible, we are bent on self-destruction. We are bent on being self-defeating. And so the Bible says the only way for that to be remedied would be for one perfect person to take responsibility for all people and to die for them. Because only death will reverse the death that is going on in our lives, the fact that we are in the process of dying and in the process of killing ourselves and each other. Now, I don't completely understand how this works. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, that a perfect person who was infinitely valuable could take the sins of the world. And this was prophesied throughout the scriptures. Again, I don't understand it. And so maybe you're going, I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't completely make sense to me, except that it just says it in the scriptures. And I've never heard a better explanation for how to fix things. Um, You know, today the Lakers are gonna be playing a playoff game and I'm gonna watch it in my living room. They are not playing in my living room, but I can see everything that they're doing. I really don't understand how that works. Um, If I studied enough, I suppose I could, but I don't really care, I just wanna watch them play. And, And see, with this this is just what it says somebody perfect had to die but that's a huge problem because we haven't found anybody perfect like i say every baby is born a brat and so what do you do well the bible teaches us that god himself jesus christ the second person of the trinity decided to come and become a person become a man, and live a perfect life, and then he would be allowed to die for all of us. And when he died with our sins put on him, then every one of us could have our sins forgiven if we would identify ourselves with him. And that's what the good news is. And when he conquered death on that first Easter, when he came and rose from the dead, it declared to everyone that what Jesus said is true. If you live and believe in me, you will never die. Because I live, you will live also. And that's awesome news. That is great, incredible news that someone came and rescued us when we could not rescue ourselves. And you might go, I don't know, man, that sounds pretty far-fetched. Not compared to every other suggested solution. Not compared to what everybody else thinks is going to fix the world. Um, You think reincarnation's gonna get it done? You think, like, if we just keep dying and coming back, how's that working so far? (laughs) Do do you think that self-improvement is gonna do it? That you can, if you will make yourself a better person, that somehow then everyone else is going to be inspired by that, and and then, whoa, well, we're all going to get better. How's that working for you so far? When, when you start determining to do better, somebody else is going to take advantage of you and, and do worse at your expense. All of the solutions other than the gospel have failed miserably, and the world is just getting worse, and things are getting worse, and the truth is You can try as hard as you can to stay young, but it's not working, I have to tell you. You know, people, it'll go for a while, people will go, wow, you look great for 50. And then they'll go, you know, when you're 55, they'll be like, you don't look a day over 40. And then by the time they see you at 60, they're gonna go, whoa, what? (laughs) You've had a lot of work, haven't you? nice try. And that's the way all of our efforts end up. Nice try. But the gospel says, and Easter says, you know what? There's a way to start over. There's a way to spring forth out of death with an explosion of life. And Easter can be true for you. And God will guarantee that you will never really die that he has an eternity that he's promised for you. And he can set you free right now so you don't have to carry the burden of your own sin. He can deliver you from guilt. He can help you. Most people are delivered from guilt by blame. You find somebody else to blame, it makes you feel better. Other people just think, I can't wait till I get old enough that I don't remember what a failure I've been. You know, you, you tell stories and you figure I can, you know, make up that I'm really great and maybe somebody will believe it. But God says, you know what? I can wipe the slates clean. I can forgive everything you've ever done, and I'll set you free. Now, important in all of that, though, is that God valued your ability to respond to what he has done. God has given you responsibility. Now, if I was designing things, I probably wouldn't build in human responsibility, Because so much can go wrong. So many people are going to make the wrong choice. So as humans, when we design something, we try to design it fail safe. We try to make it so you can't mess it up. That's why the trend in computer equipment, smartphones and things like that, um, is to have less buttons, is to have less choices. It's the whole philosophy behind Apple computer is like, let's make it so that a dog could play with this thing and they can't come up with a blue screen where it's just not working. And, and that you have one button and that says, let's start over and it's all going to work because that's what we want to do. We want to make life with no risks. And as a result, Our whole legal system is that way. Piling rule after rule after rule, and then restrictions. You know, making cars so that you can't drive without having a seatbelt on. Now, certainly, a seatbelt makes it safer to drive. The beeper just makes it annoying if you don't want to wear it. And so the idea is, we'll force people to do this. But a lot of people do what I used to do before I used seatbelts. I would just leave it snap behind me. You can always defeat a system that is designed to be fail safe. You can always find another way to do it. And just like as a kid, when we want to ride in the dryer, you know, you just stick something in there so it doesn't, but there's always a way around it. (laughs) And so when we design things, we try to make them so that you can't miss, you know, they make cars now that you have to breathe into it to check your blood alcohol level before the car will start. I guarantee somebody's gonna find a way around that. How hard would it be? Like maybe blowing up a balloon before you drink and then put the balloon up to the thing and it's, you know, it's, it's really, oh, sorry. But, but God didn't want the world to be that way. God didn't want to be tricky on people and restrict them from being stupid. And so he says, here, you do this. Why? There are several reasons. For one thing, how could someone genuinely love if they don't have a choice not to love? Now, I know when you think you're in love with someone and you'd love to, you know, have them be with you, in a weird sort of way, if you could... Use some kind of potion or, you know, do something that would force them to love you. You might go for it. But who really wants a relationship with somebody who's stuck? Who wants a relationship with, with someone who just doesn't have a choice in the matter? See, the whole thing about love is I choose to love you. It, but everything we value, courage, faithfulness, everything depends on our capacity to pick. God could have made us so that it was impossible for us to do self-destructive things. But instead, what he does is he goes, it's so important to me that you not be forced into this, that I will just give myself and I'll make an offer freely and I'll, and I'll take care of you, but you have to want me to do it. And that choice is what makes the gospel sweet and bitter. It's sweet. Anybody can pick. Anybody can decide to walk with Jesus Christ, make that decision. But at the same time, anyone can reject him. And sadly, as in the book of Revelation, so in our lives, and so on Easter, if you take everybody who takes a bite of a chocolate bunny today, most of them have rejected the concept of giving their life to Jesus Christ. And that ought to make us feel a little sick. I mean, as I'm standing up in front of a group of people this size, I know there are people here today who have never decided to give their life really to Jesus Christ. They might think they're a Christian because, well, hey, I'm here at a Christian church, aren't I? I'll be back at Christmas, too, you know? And or I grew up as a Christian. My dad was a pastor My, you know, whatever it is, I'm really better than most Christians. That's That's not hard, really. I, you know to be better than because Christians become Christians because they know how messed up they are. So yeah, you might be better than they are. The question is, can you beat death? That's the real issue. And ultimately, whenever I share this message, I, I, I love to share a good news. and I love to tell you that your sins can be forgiven today, but at the same time, There's a sick feeling in my stomach as well. There's a bitterness with this because I know there are people here today who will leave and be condemned eternally because for some reason they've just decided to reject Jesus Christ. And that hurts me and that makes me sad. And today as you go and celebrate Easter, if you're getting together with relatives and things like that, hey, don't miss the bitter part. Some of those people maybe don't know Jesus. And Easter, and hearing the Easter story, and hearing the gospel, causes them to just go, "I'm even more condemned now, because I heard it and I rejected it again." And so, whenever I share his story, I, I, I have a mixture. It's like today, maybe somebody's going to discover life. Today, maybe somebody's life is going to open up, and and they'll start in a relationship with Jesus. But today maybe somebody's going to hear the story one more time, harden themselves even more and they're just going to go, you know, I'm not convinced. It's not I'm not buying it. And the more you hear the story and reject it, the easier it is to reject it. But today maybe Jesus is drawing you to himself. If so, You know, this could be if if there are 50 people in this room who reject Jesus Christ today, but there's one whose life starts over. Oh, man, the sweetness will will make up for so much of the bitterness. But as you look at your relatives today, if you get together with them and some of them don't know Jesus, some of them aren't choosing to walk with him. I hope it does give you a bitter taste in your mouth. Because they desperately need for you to pray that they will come to know him. And so I pray that today, if you're with non-believers, that there will be a little sick feeling. Because you got to understand, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't die but have everlasting life. See, his heart was love for everyone who doesn't know him. And if you're here today and you don't even care about him, he loves you. In fact, Peter tells us the reason why he hasn't finished things and finished this world off and made it the way it's supposed to be is because he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if you don't know him today, he is looking at you with a sadness, with a bitterness, and we do too. And I pray that today, wherever we are with Jesus, we will understand the, the dilemma We will understand this this conflict, sweetness of an eternal free offer and bitterness of those who don't get it and will continue to live in misery as a result. I pray that today every one of us will understand this. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that somewhere in the back of your mind, you'll start to feel that's a sweet offer. I, I really should be doing that. If you don't, don't worry because you'll have a lot more bitterness and if if things don't end too soon, maybe you'll have other opportunities, I don't know. But maybe not. Do you really know that you will? Um, I don't. I don't know if I'll be here later on today or tomorrow. I mean, I'd be fine if I left before third service. (laughs) (laughs) But for you, who knows? But I pray that this sweetness will come through. But I pray that for all of us, too, we would never forget the sick feeling in our stomachs of people rejecting this loving offer. And I pray that this will cause you to reach out to others, to share the truth with them, to let them know that Easter is something that's real. Death really has been and can be conquered. And and you don't have to live in the misery that you're living in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the message of Easter, as sweet as it is, and as bitter as well. And just like this message to John, this book that he ate that represented the future that's sweet and bitter at the same time, Lord, I just pray that we would see the big picture, that we would understand that life is beautiful, but it's also painful, because of our rejection of you. And Lord, I pray that people who don't know you today would come to know you, that this Easter would be the dawning of a new life for them. Please just speak to their hearts. Let them know, don't give up. There is someone who loves you deeply. And so, God, we thank you for the truth of the message of Easter. Death has been conquered. Eternity is offered. The new birth is here. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you've honestly, deep down in your heart, you know, I'm not really walking with the Lord. Maybe a long time ago you kind of were, but now you're not into it so much. Or maybe this is all new to you. Unless you have a better solution, I want to urge you today to get right with God.